the hell? This advert on my Hotmail. Take time to be a dad today. Fatherhood.gov and it's Simba and Mufasa. Mufasa dies. I bid you welcome. I want to play a game. Stay on the road. Keep clear to the moors. It can't be bargained with. It can't be reasoned with. Let them see what kind of a person I am. Why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Hey folks, my name is Will. My name is Yaz. And welcome to the Monster Monday podcast. This is the weekly podcast where myself and Yaz talk about a horror film every single week. And Yaz, why do we talk about horror films? Because the monsters in film aren't as scary as the monsters in real life. And for this episode, we've got uh, an uncontested classic, uh, one of the most iconic horror films of all time. We've got 1960s Psycho, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, based on the book Psycho by Robert Block. And obviously, I think we've both seen this film before we did this uh, this podcast, didn't we, Yaz? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it is one of the uh, most culturally significant films of all time. But we we have also talked about its, uh, one of its predecessors. We talked about Les Diaboliques a couple of weeks ago, which is one of the films which uh, fundamentally inspired Psycho. So be sure to listen to, to that podcast as well if, if uh, this is the type of film that you're interested in. Yeah, so this is one of the most influential, iconic horror films of all time. So imagine this, it's the late 1950s, Alfred Hitchcock, you are riding high, you've directed North by Northwest, Vertigo, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rope, Strangers on a Train, Dial M for Murder, Rear Window, etc, etc. And you say, I want to do this film based off of this book, this controversial book which is partially based off of a real life murder case. And... The uh, the normal company that uh, distributes your films says no. It's salacious. It's it's barbaric. It's nonsense. So they decide. So Hitchcock basically mortgages his house, decides to fund the project himself in order to cut costs. He films it in black and white because black and white film is cheaper than color film. And he brings over his TV crew from his Alfred Hitchcock's Presents TV series once again just to further cut the costs. He also got rid of his directorial salary, or, or he slashed it a significant amount in order to get a 60% stake in the film's negative. That's how Psycho came about. If you wanted to know kind of more in-depth, a slightly glamorised, Hollywoodified version of the of the origins of the film, there's the Hitchcock movie that came out seven or eight years ago starring uh, Anthony, Hi- Anthony Hitchcock, starring Anthony Hopkins and Helen Mirren as uh, Mr. and Mrs. Hitchcock. Yeah, it's a really good film. Good insight into the making of Psycho mm. and into the life of Alfred Hitchcock. It's also worth checking out The Girl, which was a BBC adaptation of um, a behind the scenes of the bird, mm. making of the birds. Yeah, it's a decent double feature because Hitchcock is about the making of Psycho and The Girl is about the making of the birds, which was his next film that he did after Psycho. Yeah, also, Anthony Hopkins looks like Hitchcock, but Toby Jones has got the voice down to a T. Yeah. So Toby Jones plays Hitchcock in the TV series, so if you watch them, then, yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, it, it's a really good film. I think we've got we've got The Girl on DVD as well. It's, um, yeah, Toby Jones, I think, is... I think Toby Jones is in the better film, but Anthony Hopkins is the better Hitchcock. It's like we were talking about the other week with Spanish Dracula and normal Dracula. We want Bela Lugosi's Dracula in the Spanish version, and then you've got the ultimate Hitchcock movie. <laughs> Whereas with this, if you had Anthony Hopkins in The Girl, I think I think Toby Jones does a really good job, but there is something to be said for getting Anthony Hopkins in your movie. So that's Psycho. Well, that's the genesis of Psycho. And I'm not sure if you know anything about the actual case that inspired uh, Robert Block's book. Uh, it was about the... It's loosely inspired by the uh, the murderer from Wisconsin, Ed Gein, who... Um, he had uh, he had a domineering mother who Good passed old away. Ed, yeah. Everybody yeah. knows Ed Gein. He's the basis of quite a few horror films. Yeah. So. Such as? Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And Silence of the, the Lambs. Lambs. Yeah. Yeah, and Silence of the Lambs as well. So, yeah, he's... Um, He's quite a notorious uh, killer, but he's not a serial killer, though, because he only got charged with murder twice. Uh, I say only twice, it's still absolutely horrible. Uh, but one other thing as well, because Hitchcock is such a theatrical filmmaker, what happened is that once um, he acquired the rights to Robert Block's book, Psycho, 
he acquired the rights for nine and a half thousand dollars. What he did was that he hired every single one of his production assistants in his company to go out to every bookstore, every retailer within like a fifty mile radius of of, of where they were to buy every single copy of the book so that people couldn't hear in the news that Hitchcock is working on this film. Let's find out how it ends. Let's find out from the book what the spoilers in the film are going to be. <laughs> so that's Psycho, and we'll get breaking down of the plot. So spoilers for a like, 60-year-old film. Let's talk about Psycho. So the movie opens in Phoenix, Arizona on Friday, December the 11th, and it's 2.43pm. Thank you very much to the on-screen text. The camera pans over the cityscape and makes its way through the apartment window of Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee. Marion has taken her lunch break from work at home to spend it with her boyfriend, Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin. And the two lament on how they've kept their relationship a secret, and they can't afford to marry because of Sam's debts and alimony payments to his ex-wife. Scandalous, this scene. This is... Very controversial at the time, I imagine. Marrying. At the time, yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, 60 but years It's ago. not now, but at the time it was very scandalous. Also, Janet Leigh, Jamie Lee's mum. Oh. Um, Scream Queen. Yes. Um, what's a face from Halloween? Laurie Strode. Laurie Strode from Halloween. And there's stories about the, the filming of this scene where they had to do so many takes because Hitchcock was, uh, was yelling at the two saying, you're not being passionate enough. But they also had to contend with the, um, I don't know what it's called over there, the the people that give the certificates to films. Oh, that would be... A, the uh, censoring people. Yeah, I think it's the MPAA now. I don't know if that was the equivalent back then. But like, kind of like the BBFC in the UK now. Yeah. Where they rate whether or not it's R-rated or PG, etc. Oh, and the censorship, like, can they get away with this in film? Because mm. don't forget the 60s was... Very, you know, this is the first film, 1960, this is the first film to feature a flushing toilet. It's Yes, that's weird. And I don't know what weird scripture there was that because said they was, couldn't do it. Because it was seen as, like, it was um, gross and obscene. Like, yeah. you couldn't see that. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just bear that in mind. Yeah, well, with the stories with, with the censors in this film, uh, what Hitchcock would do for Psycho, at least, was that... He, he, I think it might have been the shower scene where he sends that to the censors and they say, no, we can see nudity, you need to cut it out. And what Hitchcock would do is that he'd wait a week or two and then just send the identical reel back. And they'd be like, oh, this is fine. You've changed it. Thank you very much for your changes. Even though it's an identical strip of film. A couple of years in my debts will be paid off. She ever remarries, the alimony stops. I haven't even been married once yet. Yeah, but when you do, you'll swing. Oh, Sam, let's get married. Yeah. And live with me in a storeroom behind a hardware store in Fairvale. We'll have lots of laughs. Tell you what, when I send my ex-wife for alimony, you can lick the stamps. I'll lick the stamps. Marion returns to her work, a real estate agency, and talks to her co-worker about a headache she has coming on. In walks the boss, George Lowry, played by Vaughn Taylor, with a big client, Tom Cassidy, played by Frank Albertson. And you can tell he's a big client because he's got a big cowboy hat. Tom, after trying to solicit Marion for sex, reveals to her that he's buying his daughter a house for her wedding tomorrow and is spending $40,000 in cash, which he openly flashes to the estate staff. Rather than keep the money in the office over the weekend, Lowry instructs Marion to deposit the money in the bank straight away. Marion requests to head straight home after the bank visit due to her headache, which her boss agrees to. We then cut to Marion's apartment as she's getting dressed. She spends a lot of time in this film undressed and in, in those... In a bra. Those cone bras from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, she's, yeah, she spends way more time just standing about in a bra than I do. You probably spend more time in one if you got one of those fancy vintage cone bras. Yeah, probably. Yeah, the ones where you turn around and like... Just never wear a top. <laughs> just walk around with a nice, beautiful cone bra. Yeah, and just turn around and stab someone in the eye with it. Um... Excuse me. It's the cones. It's it's the cones. Mm. So a, a suitcase is laid out for her to run away, and the $40,000 is still in her possession. She packs the last of her clothes, stores the money in her handbag, 
and drives away from Phoenix. When stationary in traffic, Lowry, her boss, walks across a pedestrian crossing and spots Marion in the car, but walks on, albeit looking confused. Once Marion leaves the city, she takes a rest stop at the side of the road to sleep, but is awoken the next day by a highway patrol officer knocking at her window. But despite Marion's obviously suspicious behaviour, the officer lets her drive away after seeing her registration and her Arizona state licence plate. Like, she is no good at hiding her... Her guilt. Yeah, she's obviously up to no good. Um, The officer appears to be following her as she gets back on the highway. He follows her all the way to Bakersfield, California, where Marion stops at a car dealership to trade in her car for a different license plate from California. All the while, the patrol officer is standing and watching from across the road. And the I like the uh, the car salesman here when she, he's trying to do all the routine and try and, and loosen her up to get a, get to try and get a sale of a car. And he says that this is probably the first time that um, the customer has had to has, has has had to put pressure on the salesman. Yeah, she desperately wants to get out of there. She spotted the policeman over across the road. And he's acting way more shifty than she should be if she wants to get away with a crime. Yeah, yeah. And he, even he's he picks up on this. He's like, you've not stolen this car, right? This, you've got all the paperwork and the documentation for this. Um, so she goes into the bathroom to take $700 out of the stolen money to pay for the car and speeds away, although she almost forgets her luggage, which she left in the prior car, so she has to stop for a moment because she's very, very bad at this whole criminal thing. As she drives, she starts imagining the conversations that might take place when she doesn't arrive back to work on Monday. After all, Cassidy, I told you, all that cash. I'm not taking the responsibility. Oh, for heaven's sake. Girl works for you for ten years, you trust her. All right, yes, you better come over. Well, I ain't about to kiss off $40,000. I'll get it back, and if any of it's missing, I'll replace it with her fine, soft flesh. I'll track her, never you doubt it. Oh, hold on, Cassidy. I still can't believe... It must be some kind of a mystery. I, I can't... You check with the bank, no? They never laid eyes on her, no? You still trusting? Hot creeper, she sat there while I dumped it out. Hardly even looked at it. Planning, and, and even flirting with me. As she drives, the weather gets worse, obscuring her vision and forcing her to take the next exit, arriving at the Bates Motel to stay for the night. She parks in front of the office building to find no one there to serve her. As she goes outside to look at a large house overlooking the motel, she spots a woman walking around inside the house. After several honks of her car horn, she manages to get the attention of Norman Bates, played by Anthony Perkins, who lets her inside. Twelve rooms, twelve vacancies. Marion is the only guest staying there tonight, though she does check in under a false name. Pub quiz question, what is the false name that Marion Crane gives to um, in, the, in, the, in the address book? Um, I don't know. <laughs> begins, begins with an M. It is Marie Samuels. Uh, so folks if you ever have a movie or a horror themed pub quiz the book uh, the false name that she gives in Psycho is Marie Samuels well I would have failed mm. I've just watched the film <laughs> <laughs> to be fair she's got the tiny fancy cursive um, writing. Uh, writing so it could be quite hard to read a shy Norman shows Marion to her room, gives her the guided tour, and invites her to join in in a dinner of sandwiches and milk at the house, which I think is just the most gentlemanly offer that she could have received that day, really. Well, what do you do if a, a, nervous, a nervous hotel manager offered you sandwiches and milk? Well, I'm quite picky, so it'd be no milk, because I think milk is disgusting. Mm-hmm. I never liked milk. No, not to drink on its own. No. And I'd be like, well, what? what's the sandwich, please? What's the sandwich <laughs> choice? Because I'm very picky about sandwiches as well. I don't like anything that's soggy or smelly. Well, so egg is a no-go. We've got salmon and cucumber. Well, I'm a vegetarian, so oh. I won't be eating salmon. Oh, no. A che- um, cheese and onion? I don't like onion. It's stinky. Oh, we've got uh, plowman's. Pickle. Oh, okay, this is why Yaz survives the events of this film because she doesn't stick around with, this, with a sandwich or something. Yeah, I'm disappointed by the sandwich choice <laughs> and I leave and pack up straight away. What kind of hospitality is this? And then he'd have to say, Don't piss on my hospitality, I won't allow it. And then Psycho becomes a prequel to Troll 2. Um, 
And then and if something does happen to if something does happen to Yaz at the autopsy, contents of her stomach was a, a cheese and onion and plowman sandwich. And I'd be there like, no, that's not right. That's not the Yaz I know. She was clearly been coerced into this sandwich eating. Yeah, something bad has happened to her. She's clearly been murdered, mm. force fed. And there was milk in her sandwiches. stomach. Sandwiches. <laughs> 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 oh. I don't really like sandwiches at the best of time, you know. Oh. I don't know, there's just something about a sandwich that I just don't really like. Well, you like, um, but like, things in baguettes and things in buns? Yeah, I pref- yeah, I prefer other bread material. Yeah. So, so, <laughs> so if Norman Bates had gone here and said, can I please offer you a corn... A corn chicken sandwich and a brioche bun with a bit of cheese on top. You would have been like, yes, please, Mr. Bates. Uh, so, but Marion agrees to this. So this is why she doesn't survive the film, because she does agree to this. And she starts unpacking her belongings once Norman is left. And I thought this was pretty clever, but you thought this was dumb. Uh, she hides the stolen money wrapped up in newspaper and hides, it, and hides it in plain sight on the bedside table. I thought this was clever. Yeah, well, I'm not being funny, but if like if someone's going to snoop in your room and they see the newspaper, the first thing I'm looking in is the newspaper. Really? Yes. What, what if it's Everybody a... hides shit in newspapers. Oh god. So I, I, well, to be and what if there's a really catchy story on the front page and I want to find out more? Oh, what? what... <laughs> on the front of the newspaper, it's got vouchers inside for your brioche buns. <laughs> yes, please. Oh, there's forty thousand dollars in here. Um, she hears an elderly woman shouting at Norman from the neighbouring house for inviting a woman over for supper. This is Norman Bates's mother. And that house must have incredible acoustics, being able to hear it from across the way on a stormy night. Yeah, it's a bit strange that you can hear so clearly what's going on. Also, back to the newspaper. Yes. It didn't look like a folded newspaper. It looked like it had something inside it. So therefore, I would probably snoop if I was going to snoop in somebody's room. Yeah, it could be fish inside. Yeah, yeah, could. but you'd smell that. Uh, oh, yeah, you would. Depends on how much salt and vinegar is in it. Now I'm just hungry. <laughs> you just made me hungry. Um, so Norman runs out of the house with a tray of sandwiches and despite Marion's low appetite, seems to take pity on Norman and joins him in the office parlour for company anyway. Oh, the amount of times you, as a woman, have to take pity on the creepy guys so mm. you don't offend them. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah. Or just guys in general. Yeah, well, would you take the invite to go into a room with large taxidermy birds? I would, to be polite, yeah. because women are raised to be polite mm. um, and not offend anyone. Yeah. But then I would probably sit there really on edge because, like, well, there's a load of dead birds mm. in the office and that's a bit weird. It is a bit. So the two sit and they talk about his hobby of taxidermy. It's a strange hobby. Curious. Uncommon, too. Oh, I imagine so. And it's, uh, it's not as expensive as you'd think. It's cheap, really. You know, needles, thread, sawdust. The chemicals are the only thing that, that, that cost anything. A man should have a hobby. Well, it's, it's... It's more than a hobby. A hobby's supposed to pass the time, not fill it. Is your time so empty? No. Well, I, I run the office. And... Uh, Tend the cabins and grounds and, and do little uh, errands for my mother. The one she allows I might be capable of doing. Do you go out with friends? Well, a, a boy's best friend is his mother. Norman reveals that while he has a difficult relationship with his mother, that he won't leave because she's ill and needs caring for, especially after the death of her second husband who convinced her to build the motel, but died shortly afterwards. And these are these are circumstances that Norman avoids talking about while eating. Uh, I presume, because I've not seen much of it, that these are the events of the TV show um, Bates, Bates Motel. I don't know, I've not seen it. Because it is a young Norman Bates and his mother when they're starting up the hotel. That's all I know about the plot. Isn't it Freddie Highmore? Charlie from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory remake yes. as, as Norman Bates. And it's um, Vera... Vera Famiga. Yes. Oh, yes, from The Conjuring. Ooh. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I presume that this is... If you wanted that backstory and that lore, you can watch that TV show. And one of the creepiest lines, even though he is technically not incorrect, he says, a son is a poor substitute for a lover. 
bit of Oedipus complex coming on here. Yeah, I just think it's weird to talk about as a kid when referring to your parents using the term lover, but maybe it's the 50s and 60s, what do I know? It's the black and white days. But the conversation takes a darker turn when Norman misinterprets Marion's advice to put his mother into a madhouse. But Norman insists that it's okay because we all go a little mad sometimes. However, this conversation with Norman does convince Marion that tomorrow morning she needs to drive back to Phoenix to own up to what she's done. Norman promises to bring breakfast to her at dawn before she leaves and the two-part company, with Marion giving Norman her last name of Crane. But Norman notices that it's not the name that she put down in the address book. And even though I think in the opening credits of the film it says uh, starring... Janet Lee as Marion Crane. This is the first time that it's said in the actual film itself, and she's in a room full of birds, uh, which are going to be taxidermied. And I forgot to mention at the beginning, because Psycho is a film that was made before the, the mid-1970s, it has all of the opening credits at the beginning and no credits at the end, because, once again, pub quiz trivia, what was the first film that popularised the opening credits? Star Wars! Yes, exactly, the ending credits, I should say. But yes, Star Wars is correct, we talked about that in Les Diabolique. So, now alone in the parlour, Norman takes a picture off the wall revealing a peephole leading into Marion's room and watching her get undressed, cone bras abound. He then returns to the old gothic house overlooking the motel. Marion uses a notebook in her room to find out how much money she spent and needs to pay back before ripping apart the pages and flushing them down the toilet. And this is what you mentioned earlier, the first American movie to show a toilet flushing on screen because that's that was 60 years ago and that was a milestone randomly. Marion then undresses and takes a shower. As she washes, a shadowy figure is seen walking into the room hidden by the shower curtain. This is the most, probably the most iconic scene. One of the most iconic scenes of any film. Yes, like in in this film, in this genre, in film generally. The figure, unseen to the audience, pulls back the curtain and is revealed to be wielding a knife. Marion screams but is brutally stabbed to death in the shower. The murderer flees as Marion dies in the still-running shower, her blood getting washed away down the drain. With some um, really good... The movie score's amazing in this. Uh, yes, it is. Absolutely. I... Also, the blood is actually chocolate sauce, and because it's black and white, it appears like it's blood. Yes, it, it is. Uh, it's chocolate sauce because it has the a better consistency to... It has a more... Um, it, it looks more like blood on film than actual like fake blood would. Because it's in black and white, it's brilliant. So, yeah, this scene, uh, despite it lasting just under three minutes, took six days to film. And it's comprised of 50 cuts, uh, like 50 cuts, 50 edits over the course of it. And this is back in ye olden times when you would film it on a film reel and you'd physically have to cut the reel and stick it back together in order to make these edits. It's a it's a terrific, like, thing I, of I love editing. this scene. I think I like it when the and you see the water and blood going down the plug hole and mm-hmm. then it hands back to her eyes and she's just laid there still yes uh, and that shot was also very difficult to shoot because the focus was terrible uh, to try and sort that shot out but also Hitchcock kept on yelling cut because Janet Lee was getting water splashed in her eye when she's meant to be dead so she kept on blinking but like yeah this is this is this was a, an allegedly pretty grueling shoot as well and they had to try and sh- uh, avoid all of the nudity despite it being a shower scene the music's terrific as well like instantly recognizable it's up there with the jaws theme in terms of horror 
horror scores and talking about like film symbolism and stuff she's washing away the guilt of what she's done and, and it, this was just a great twist generally because we're 40 minutes into the film yeah we think this is our main character and oh surprise she's been whacked off exactly it's it's why during the release of this film you had posters with hitchcock like the director on the poster saying that once the doors are closed no one would be admitted into the film so we don't get it so nobody is able to come in late and and get the the film's twist spoiled for you and yeah it's a brilliant iconic scene everything about it works and is amazingly done i think one reason it works incredibly well also is because you're when you're in the shower you are naked vulnerable there's yeah nothing... it's your most vulnerable state isn't it so it's always the biggest fear that something bad will happen to you then yeah and it's and it's this this obviously predates jaws but this would make you feel very vulnerable and scared in the shower in case something were to happen or someone were to break in. It's it it really touches on very primal fears and it's 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 an incredible piece of filmmaking. In the novel, um, Marion, uh, she's called Mary in the book. She gets uh, beheaded in the shower, so it's oh. a pro- it's a bit more brutal and a bit more violent in the book with a butcher knife in the shower. So th- this scene does kind of happen in the book, but I think it's maybe a bit more violent there. The camera pans over to the newspaper, still rolled up and concealing the money, and we hear shouting from the Bates house with Norman screaming at the sight of blood, revealing that he knows the identity of the murderer. He comes running and discovers the body, which understandably freaks him out, and after collecting himself, he wipes down the crime scene, bundles up Marion's body in the shower curtain, and he washes his hand of the blood. Oh, um, He puts her and her belongings in the car, in Marion's car, and dumps it in a nearby swamp, including unbeknownst to him the stolen forty thousand dollars and that's something i really like about this film how it's over the course of the film they think oh the the money is the motivator the forty thousand dollars is motivating everything but no he's what someone just wanted to kill her don't they don't know anything about this stolen money which kind of hinders the investigation for a long time because they're so focused on this on this monetary crime a week later marion's sister leela crane played by vera miles comes to the shop that Sam is working at to confront him about her sister's disappearance. Sam is just as clueless about where she is, and in walks in private investigator Milton Abergast, played by Martin Balsam, who has been following Leela to try and find out where Marion is because she's wanted for theft, which is news to Sam. We're then greeted to a montage of Milton checking a bunch of local motels and hotels over the span of two days before arriving at the Bates Motel, where he's greeted by Norman on the porch, who reveals that he's looking for a missing woman, though Norman lies and says that no one has stayed for a few weeks, a lie which Milton quickly catches him out on during their conversation, and also finds the false name in the address book. Norman, while nervous, manages to answer Milton's questions, claiming that Marion left the next morning, and offers to show Milton around all of the rooms while he changes the bedsheets. Milton looks up at the Bates' house and spots a figure looking through the window. Though Norman initially claims that no one is home, Milton asks if he's harbouring Marion or protecting her in exchange for money. Is anyone at home? No. Oh, there's somebody sitting up in the window. No, no, no there isn't. Oh, sure, go ahead, take a look. Oh, that, that, uh, that must be my mother. She's, she's an, an invalid. An invalid. Uh, it's, uh, it's practically like living alone. Oh, I see. Uh, now, if this uh, girl, Marion Crane, were here, you wouldn't be hiding her, would you? No. Not if she paid you well? No. <laughs> Let's just say for the uh, just for the sake of argument that she wanted you to uh, gallantly protect her. You'd know that you were being used. That you, you wouldn't be made a fool of, would you? But I'm not a fool. Well, I'm... and I'm not capable of being fooled. Not, not even by a woman. Well, this is not a slur on your manhood. I'm uh, sorry. Let's put it this way: she might have fooled me, but she didn't fool my mother. Milton leaves, suspicious of Norman's behaviour and inconsistent account, with Norman smiling and chuckling to himself as he drives away. Milton uses a nearby payphone to inform Leela where Marion was last seen and that he still has more work to do at the Bates Motel. He's going to try and speak to the mother and he'll be back within the hour. So Milton returns to the motel again to try and question Norman's mother. He finds no one in the office or parlour and makes his way up the garden stairs to the house itself. He lets himself in and goes up the stairs in the main hall only for someone wielding a knife to ambush him at the top of the stairs, slashing his face. Milton falls down the stairs, and the culprit finishes the job, stabbing him into silence. Back in Arizona, 
Leela and Sam are waiting for Milton to return, but with no sign of him, Leela wants to pick up where he left off and investigate the Bates Motel. So Sam goes while Leela waits back in Arizona in case Milton comes back. At the motel, Sam yells and cries out for service outside the office, but Norman, who is standing by the swamp, ignores him. Sam returns to Leela later that night and says that he found no Milton, no Norman Bates, but only an old woman in the house who was too ill to answer the door. Concerned, the two make a house call to their deputy sheriff, Al Chambers, played by John McIntyre, but he dismisses their worries and thinks that Milton might have discovered Marion and took the money for himself. But to get Leela and Sam off their backs, he rings up the motel and speaks to Norman on the phone. After he hangs up, he drops a bit of a bombshell. Your detective told you he couldn't come right back because he was going to question Norman Bates' mother, right? Yes. Norman Bates's mother has been dead and buried in Green Lawn Cemetery for the past ten years. I hope Norman pick out the dress she was buried in. Periwinkle blue. It ain't only local history, Sam. It's the only case of murder and suicide on Fairvale ledgers. Mrs. Bates poisoned this guy she was involved with when she found out he was married. Then took a helping to the same stuff herself. Strychnine. Ugly way to die. Norman found them dead together. In bed. At the Bates household, we hear an argument between Norman and his mother as Norman wants to move her to the fruit cellar in order to prevent her from being discovered, with Norman seen to be carrying his mother down the stairs against her will. The sheriff and his wife are leaving church on Sunday morning and informs Leela and Sam that he went to the motel and saw that Norman is definitely alone there and that he also saw the fake name in the address book but this does little to convince them as they make their own way to the motel, planning to pose as a married couple to search the place. They check in with Norman, and once they're in the room, they consider the idea that Norman might have taken the stolen money in order to escape from a failing business. They sneak into room one, where Marion stayed, and search the room, including the bathroom, where they find there's no shower curtain and a piece of paper that didn't get flushed properly from the toilet, subtracting numbers from $40,000. They decided to have Sam distract Norman while Leela sneaks into the home to confront his mother about Marion and the money's whereabouts. And this is, I think this is, this is a good plan on paper, but Sam is not a good team player because he's deliberately agitating and yelling and incriminating himself in front of Norman. And um, I think it's very short-sighted and, it, and it, it doesn't pay off in the end because he ends up tipping off that Leela's inside the house later on. Yeah, but he's also panicked and desperate yeah. I read it as him just trying to be an out like a macho alpha male in front of in front of little Norman Leela searches the house finding Mrs. Bates old clothes still in the bedroom wardrobe as well as deep indentations on the bed the outline of a person who has laid there for a long time however Sam agitates Norman and when discovering that Leela is not in her motel room takes an ornament and smacks it in Sam's head knocking him out cold Norman, desperate to protect his mother, runs to the house. Leela spots him coming up the garden path and goes to the cellar to hide. And inside... Well, not even in the cellar. She's, like, just on the stairs. Well, it works. It works you out. You see her through the banister. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm surprised that he went straight upstairs when yeah, he's meant to be going too. for the mother. Yeah, because he, he, he took the mother downstairs. Anyway, nitpicks. So, inside, inside the cellar, Leela finds Norman Bates's mother sitting in a chair, facing away from the door, quietly. Leela taps her on the shoulder, causing her to turn around in her chair, revealing a corpse. Norman Bates... Not just any corpse. A a mummified mummified corpse. corpse. Yes, Norman Bates' mother is indeed dead and is a mummified corpse. Leela screams, causing Norman to run in and find her. Norman is now wearing a wig, his mother's clothes, and is wielding a kitchen knife. But before Norman can attack her, Sam comes running in and manages to wrestle the knife out of his hand. We then fade to an Arizona courthouse where Norman Bates is being examined by psychiatrists who reveal their findings to the sheriff. Did he talk to you? No. I got the whole story, but not from Norman. I got it from his mother. Norman Bates no longer exists. He only half existed to begin with. And now, the other half has taken over. Probably for all time. Now, to understand it the way I understood it, hearing it from the mother, that is, from the mother half of Norman's mind, 
You have to go back 10 years. TLDR, Norman, becoming disturbed after the death of his father, killed his mother and her new partner in a fit of jealousy. In order to cope with killing his own mother, he hid the mother's corpse and preserved it. He also adopted his mother's personality into himself so he could pretend that she wasn't gone. Norman, adopting his mother's personality, killed Marion as well as two other women who previously stayed at the hotel because he was attracted to them and that his mother might have been jealous. These were crimes of passion, not profit. Norman, nor his mother, knew anything about the money. And in terms of, like, the movie's skewed gender politics, to, to the film's credit, kind of, the psychiatrist does shoot down the idea of Norman having a, differ having a different gender identity that, and that he was just wearing his mother's clothes because it's what his mother would have done. I'm not saying that, uh, oh, it turns out that Alfred Hitchcock was uh, secretly a super-woke... Um, left-wing left filmmaker who knew everything about uh, the complexities of gender identity. But I think to the film's credit, it, when you've got a police officer who's like, oh, so he's, he's a transvestite. And he's like, no, no, not exactly. Not that. No, because he's not gaining... As they, as a psychiatrist... Oh, this is so offensive. Yeah. But as the psychiatrist says, uh, like he a... doesn't get any sexual gratification from it. It's literally he... It's like a multiple personality. He has literally adopted his mother's personality. Yeah, which also extends to the clothes that uh, that she's wearing and things like that. So, as opposed to it being a a, a, a gender or slight sexual motivator. Like, obviously, this isn't uh, the most progressive form of gender identity depicted in film at all. But um, at least it makes some sort of a clarification. So the movie ends with a police officer giving Norman a blanket, as his mother's personality, now the dominant personality, speaks her regret about condemning her own son and that she was entirely innocent, looking directly into the camera at the end. The final shot of the film has Marion's car being pulled out of the swamp. It's sad when a mother has to speak the words that condemn her own son, but I couldn't allow them to believe that I would commit murder. They'll put him away now as I should have, years ago. He was always bad, and in the end he intended to tell them I killed those girls and that man, as if I could do anything except just sit and stare, like one of his stuffed birds. Oh, they know I can't even move a finger, and I won't. I'll just sit here and be quiet, just in case they do suspect me. They're probably watching me. Well, let them. Let them see what kind of a person I am. I'm not even going to swat that fly. I hope they are watching. They'll see. They'll see and they'll know. And they'll say, why, she wouldn't even harm a fly. Over the course of the film, you've got three people who voice uh, Norman Bates's mother. Uh, you've got Jeanette Nolan... Paula Jasmine and Virginia Gregg, with Virginia Gregg performing that final monologue at the end. And uh, Gregg would uh, return to do the voice of the mother uh, in Psycho 2 and Psycho 3. So she, she is kind of the considered to be the the voice of Norman Bates' mother. Um, so, going back to the birds, um, so I have a book called The Monstrous Feminine, I'm sure I've read it spoke about it before it's yeah. really good and yeah. it analyzes like um the monstrous feminine in films mm -hmm. um so the mother in um psycho is known as what is called the castrating mother okay um so this is typically a very domineering mother um, it's all to do with like the Oedipus complex. It's a load of psychological crap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, it is quite interesting when related to like horror film characters and stuff like that. So the fact that um, they're sat in a room full of birds of prey mm -hmm. that eat other birds' children and sometimes their own. Yeah, yeah. Is very significant. That's mm -hmm. one element. The fact that Marion Crane's last name is Crane yep. is also pretty relevant. <laughs> and that she's, I'm sure it says something about Phoenix. It's Phoenix, Arizona? Yes. Is that where oh, she comes from? Oh, very good. So that's also another 
you know. I didn't make that connection. Yeah. Very good. Yes, yes. Yeah, so he's likening birds with women. So um, women appear to peck daintily, but in reality they are voracious consumers, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously the crane is a big bird so that's just like an emphasis on the theme of the watchful mother yeah and the phoenix obviously is the mythology with rebirth mm-hmm. well it's, it's so mrs bates is dead but lives on in norman because he's decided to rebirth her like because he's given her a new life kind of thing also um stabbing is a very passionate crime isn't it yeah it's, it's not some it's um excuse this but um Phallic. Yeah, penetrating. So, yeah, so you're literally penetrating. He wants to penetrate her and obviously he can't because his mother would think badly of that or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, so he's literally penetrating her the only way that he can by stabbing her. And it's a very passionate crime. This is a mm-hmm. lot of psychoanalysis for you guys. I'm, I'm really sorry. Well, yeah, well, but it's getting, I think it's super interesting. Well, psycho, on that topic, we'll return to the book in a moment, but on that topic, this is a very commonly, like, referred to and referenced film in film studies which is why i have found an activity worksheet from penguin readers <laughs> teachers support program where there is literally a three-page document where i'm not going to go through all the questions i'm going to go through a couple of questions and okay. test you on the film okay okay whilst reading um the first three scenes answer these questions about marion crane how old is she um I don't think that's said in the film, is it? Uh, 34. Okay. Don't know. What kind of work does she do? Uh, she looks like she's an administrator she's in, slash receptionist. She's, yeah, she's in real estate, I think they'd accept. The, the answers aren't here, but this is the question sheet. Is she married? No. Is she a happy woman? Why slash why not? <laughs> um, yes and no. She, yes, she's happy because she's free to do whatever she wants during a time where women are very... Um, we haven't had the liberation yet. Nope. And um, <laughs> she's also not happy because her lover is still tied up with his ex-wife or mm. whatever and they have secret meetings and also um, she you know, she wants him to come round for dinner mm-hmm. where her sister can cook and it can be more than just sex yep. in a hotel room, which <laughs> is what they currently are. Mm-hmm. Um, and there'll be a picture of her mother there watching over. Oh, <laughs> another domineering mother. <laughs> oh, behind me. Um, watching, watching over them. Um, mm-hmm. So nothing can happen except he wants to turn the photograph around. I'm going to put this worksheet, by the way, in the podcast description so you folks at home can join in. Um, does uh, Marion Crane have any brothers or sisters? A sister. Okay. Complete the sentences with the names from this box. So we've got Tom Cassidy, Marion Crane, Sam Loomis, Mr. Lowry and the policeman. So Blank wants to marry her boyfriend. Marion. Okay. Blank needs $11,000 to pay his debts. Sam. Yes. So, Blank is late to work after lunch, but her boss is having lunch with a customer. Marion. Um, Blank is an unpleasant man with lots of money. <laughs> and Cassidy. A, uh, yeah, I assume that's Tom Cassidy. Blank leaves work with $40,000. Marion. Blank sees Marion Crane in her car at some traffic lights. Policeman. No, that, oh, that's Mr. Lowry. Oh, yes. oh yeah. Okay, so... Uh, a policeman wants to see Blank's driving papers. Marion. Blank follows her to a garage. Policeman. Blank buys a new car at the garage. Marion. There we go. <laughs> there we go. This is this is a style work. We won't do this whole sheet, obviously, but there's there's loads of um, questions like um, Abagast doesn't run away from the old woman because, and then you have to write stuff about motivations and what happens in the film and such. But yeah, <laughs> Psycho is kind of a, a very good example of stuff that is um, well acknowledged as a, as a genre horror film that that is taught in film schools and stuff like that. It's not all Citizen Kane. It can be Psycho. Yeah, there's, um, there's a lot to the film. There's a lot of firsts. There's a lot of... Um psychological stuff hmm. Oedipus complex yeah. um, I'm sure you've heard of that before if hmm. you haven't quick breathing it was Freud that the psychologist said that every 
son is in love with his mother and every daughter is in love with her dad. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, that means, like, they want to have sex with them as well, Mm. which is, I think, absolutely bananas. Mm -hmm. But um, that's psychology for you. Yeah, and Oedipus, that's the Greek legend, isn't it? Oedipus of the the man who killed his father and had sex with his mother, but didn't didn't know about it, but it fucked him up. And then he ripped his eyeballs out. Yes. I did that play at GCSE. GCSE drama. I was Oedipus. I studied psychology, so there we go. Ah, simply meant to be. And I had uh, ping pong balls for eyes, and we basically just took long beads of grass and put them in barbecue sauce, and that was like the veins and stuff. It freaked out the audience. Basically, um, it's just saying, like, why are are female monsters so prevalent and scary and stuff like that? I mean, it's usually, you think of it as the other way around, but it seems to be a lot scarier to people when it's a woman that's a monster Mm. Um, and basically the woman's usually the victim but when it's tipped on its head a little bit basically Freud's argument is that a woman terrifies because she is castrated already like she doesn't have a penis Mm. fuck's sake Freud (laughs) (laughs) Um, the position only serves to reinforce patriarchal definitions of a woman, which represent and reinforce the essentialist view that women by nature are victims. However, women in horror films can, are quite often depicted as monsters now. Mm. Um, it speaks to us more about male fears than about female desire or feminine subjectivity. So it's always the fear of a man that makes a woman a monster. So, like... Carrie, hers is coming of age. Mm-hmm. She gets her period and then gets these powers. Yeah. Um, the vagina dentata <laughs> is another one. So, like, teeth. Um, I'm sure you've seen that film. Mm-hmm. Um, or at least know of the film. Yeah, at least know the film. So, according to Stephen King, um, the vagina dentata is the man's worst fear. So, um, in case you don't know what vagina dentata is it's basically a vagina with teeth so you can imagine what would happen there so apparently that, that that's man's greatest fear mm-hmm. i don't know i'm not a man mm. is it a greatest fear i plead the fifth okay hey. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and it, it tilts the fact that the male spectator is almost always situated in an active sadistic position and the female spectator in a passive masochistic one mm-hmm. um so it's, and it basically um, this book by Barbara Creed basically goes on to say um, rereading key aspects of Freudian theory, particularly his theory of the Oedipus complex and castration. When women are represented as monstrous, it is almost always in relation to her mothering and reproductive functions. The archaic mother, the monstrous womb, the witch, the vampire, the possessed woman. And in relation to Freud's theory of castration, Freud argued that women terrify because she appears to be castrated. Man's fear of castration led him to construct another monstrous fantasy that a a woman as a castrator. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, fragile masculinity is the basis (laughs) of the whole of this. Too long, don't read. Yeah. she, her monstrousness is linked more directly to questions of sexual desire than to the area of reproduction. The image of a woman as a castrator takes at least three forms. A woman as the deadly femme castris, the castrating mother, and the vagina dentata. Freud did not analyse men's fears of women as a castrator. In fact, he seems to have repressed this image of woman in his writing about sexual differences. And in his case, histories... Um, so I don't know if you have heard about his theory of little hands. Can you tell us studied psychology yet? Um, <laughs> I can now. So it's it is slipping. <laughs> it is slipping a bit. So um, yes, little hands. Little hands is this boy, and obviously it's the theory that he is scared of. He wants to have sex with his mother, mm. and he's scared of his father. And horses scare him. Okay, because. They are tall with big penises, yeah. like his father. Yeah, honestly, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know. It's, it's honestly the most yeah. ridiculous thing ever. Okay. Um, and women are scared of their mothers because of blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. So anyway, here comes the domineering mother. Yeah. 
trope. Yeah. <laughs> there's there's lots more to it than obviously this is just brief. Like I mm. like you have to study psychology a long time to understand it all. Mm. Um, and I only did a year's worth of psychology because I thought this is fucking ridiculous. It's all about men's dicks. <laughs> Why is there so many dicks in psychology? <laughs> it's not all about that. That's just Freud. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think we're a bit more complicated than everything just coming down to our genitals. Yeah, I like to but, think so. Um, there's his theory is like there's four stages like you get fixated in an oral stage mm-hmm. like as babies Yeah, where you put everything in your mouth and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, that's true. Babies do do that. Yeah, it's how they explore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Can you just Google it so I can get a few more pointers out? This is a long time since I've studied it. So what am I, what am I Googling? Little hands. Why was little hands scared of horses? <laughs> I just told you why. Because of horse willing. Horse dick. Um, <laughs> oh, okay. What are the five stages of psychological development? Psychosexual development. Yes. Uh, oral, anal, phallic, latency, and genital. Yeah. Back to the main point. Mm-hmm. The mother in Psycho is supposedly a castrating mother. Yeah, yeah. So she's domineering. Like, mm-hmm. However, that's only from his point of view because he killed her mm-hmm. because she had a new lover. She wanted to be maybe independent from him or like, have, a li- have, have a life outside being a mother. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, she can't do that though because she's not a person. She's just his mother though, isn't she? Mm-hmm. Maybe that's his thinking. Well, when when Marion uh, when Leela goes to explore the Bates house later on, she finds like children's toys and stuff like that. So he's kind of uh, he's locked into this childlike state of of the good old days when it was just him and his mother. Yeah, he's never grown from his trauma, mm-hmm. and it's um, turned into psychosis. Yeah. I think if you saw a chance to get out from under, you'd unload this place. This place? This place happens to be my only world. I grew up in that house up there. I had a very happy childhood. My mother and I were more than happy. There's, of course, a lot to say about Psycho. It's been called um, by um, uh, by psychoanalysts such as uh, Sergei uh, K- uh, Kagansky the first psychoanalytical thriller. And you've got um, uh, psychologists such as uh, Slavoj Zizek, who uh, did a whole documentary on this called The Pervert's Guide to Cinema, noting how Psycho, the, the the Bates house in Psycho, has got three floors on it, paralleling the three levels of the human mind, which are um, which are put forward in Freudian psychosis, where the top floor is the uh, superego, where Bates' mother lives. Oh, yes, the id. The, gro- the ground floor is Bates' ego, where he functions as a normal human being. And in the basement, where the corpse is found at the end, is Bates' id. Um, and uh, Zizek interprets Bates moving his mother's corpse from the top floor to the basement as a symbol for the deep connection that psychoanalysts posits between the superego and the id. So, of course, there's a lot to be said about psycho in this sort of sense, but it's, it's also, in a more general, less uh, psychological sense, one of the first, one of, if not the first slasher film in, like, in, in cinema history. It's predated a couple of months by the film Peeping Tom, which is a British film uh, from director Michael Powell, but no one's heard of Peeping Tom, so Psycho is kind of the film that's considered to be the first uh, slasher film. And it was the second most financially successful film of 1960, behind Spartacus. So this film with um, all this Freudian stuff and this uh, salacious showering and stabbing and... Toilets flushing. flushing, uh, was the second highest grossing film, at least in North America in 1960. Um, And it has, of, of course, spawned... Uh, an entire genre, basically, of, of knife-wielding horror icons. Uh, it also spawned a couple of sequels. you got Psycho 2, you got Psycho 3, and Psycho 4, The Beginning, which is a, a television uh, prequel film, which is from the, uh, the writer of the original film as well. And you've also got, in 1998, Gus Van Sant uh, made a shot-for-shot remake uh, starring yes, Vin- Vince, Vaughan. Vince Vaughan as Norman Bates. And uh, Rick Baker does the makeup, and uh, I'm showing Yaz now, because this is great radio, that's, uh, Miss, that's uh, the Mother's Corpse as well, done by Rick Baker. Cool. But it's basically a shot-for-shot remake. Um, uh, Julianne Moore plays uh, the uh, the sister character as well, uh, plays Leela Crane. It was kind of a cr- uh, a critical and financial flop. Why does anyone want to see a shot-for-shot remake of a film that almost everyone interested in film has already seen? 
Uh, and there is the TV show Bates Motel, uh, which, I, as we established before, we've not seen. That's... I think I've seen the first episode. And it, it was also nominated at the Oscars. For four Oscars, it was nominated but didn't win Best Director for Hitchcock, Best Supporting Actress for Janet Leigh, Best Art Direction in Black and White, and Best Cinematography in Black and White, because until like the mid-1960s, you could get Black and White Oscars for Cinematography uh, and Art Direction. Have you seen? We won't watch it now, but have you seen the trailer for Psycho, the original theatrical trailer, which shows no footage, but it's basically just Alfred Hitchcock walking around yes. the Bates house, and there's one point he just looks in a cupboard, looks disgusted, and closes the door. Isn't this the one where he like introduces the film in the cinema as well? I think it might be. Yeah, and we mentioned earlier he is on the film's poster, um, and the poster says it is required that you see Psycho from the very beginning. And there's a photo of Hitchcock pointing at a watch very disapprovingly. I miss the the advertising like this. Mm. I wish we could bring it back, but well, this was back in the day when a filmmaker could single-handedly sell a film. You don't get that as much nowadays. Like you'll get your auteurs like Tarantino and Christopher Nolan and things like that. Yeah, Guillermo del Toro, yes. <laughs> but, like, but could you imagine a trail, a poster for The Shape of Water where it's like Guillermo just floating in a fish tank saying, this is my movie. I'd see it anyway. I, I'd, I'd absolutely see that, but I think we might be in the minority there. <laughs> uh, so the poster says it is required that you see Psycho from the very beginning. The next showing of Psycho begins at, and there's a blank space for the, the movie theatre to put the time, the manager of this theatre has been instructed at the risk of his life not to admit to the theatre any persons after the picture starts, any spurious attempts to enter by side doors, fire escapes, or ventilating shafts will be met by force. The entire objective of this extraordinary policy, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. And at the bottom, it's signed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's such a good technique. Like, I wish I wish we had that policy full stop anyway. I hate it when people arrive late to the cinema. Well, yeah. It really annoys me. Yeah, I've seen people Distracts walk, me. walk into films 40, 50 minutes late. And this isn't like 40, 50 minutes and half an hour of trailers and then they come in. No, it's full on late. Uh, but, yeah. but I like I like the guerrilla style of campaigning. Like mm. they should, yeah. I want to bring it back. Yeah, we've talked about this before I mean, with uh, Evil Dead and ambulances outside the theater. Yeah. Um, the only thing I can slightly compare it to at the minute is where like an author sells, like the writer or whatever sells the thing is um, Mike Flanagan with. Everybody loved the haunting of Hill House. Yeah. So when everybody knew that Bly Manor was coming out, mm-hmm. he could just sell it. Everyone, it's like from the creator of Haunting of Hill House. Oh yeah. You know straight away it's going to be good. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. Also, I mentioned that because I'm desperate to get back watching it. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, last night we watched like four episodes four of it episodes, last night, and we've got yeah. about five left, and we're really enjoying it. Mike Flanagan. If you want to hear more thoughts on him, we watched Oculus uh, a few episodes back, so you can go back and listen to we that. We might. One. We might. Well, after this episode, we're doing a special episode because it will be my birthday. Yes. That that brings me to the next point. We're not spinning the wheel at the end of this one. We're going to let Yaz decide because next Monday, October nineteenth. It's her birthday. Happy birthday to Yaz for next Monday. Thank you. Uh, so we're going to talk about whatever the hell she wants to talk about. And I think she knows at this point. Are, yes. Are, are we going to announce it now or do we save it a week? No, I can I can talk about it. That's all good. It's going to be more of a discussion episode. Yes. Rather than focusing on one film. Mm-hmm. We'll just have a general discussion about some cool stuff. There's some... Uh, can I say horror TV shows? Yeah, horror yeah. TV shows mm-hmm. that I really like and want to talk about lots. <laughs> yeah, I know. and you've been saying, let's do a special episode on these things for like weeks. Yeah, and now, and and now, now it's I your finally birthday. get the time. It's your yeah. birthday, so this is the one day of the year where you can. You, we can't do this again until your birthday falls on a Monday again. <laughs> so next week will be Yaz's birthday and we'll do a general discussion then. But until then, if you wanted to wish Yaz a happy birthday, or if you wanted to keep the conversation going, we do have Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. Links are down below, but just for the sake of completion's sake, Yaz, where can you find us on social media? Twitter at MonsterMonPod, Instagram at MonsterMondayPod, and on Facebook at 
Monster Monday podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us talk about Psycho. Uh, like I said, if you wanted more just general behind-the-scenes stuff, so much of psychoanalysis and just the making of the film has been written and done already, check out the Hitchcock film. I think it's on Amazon or Netflix. It should be easy yeah. It should be easy to get a hold of. Also, if you're interested more in the psychoanalysis of um, film and horror films, uh, the book I was referring to and quite often refer to is The Monstrous Feminine by Barbara Creed. Um, also, uh, another really good book to look at is Men, Women and Chainsaws by Carol Clover. Yeah, and, of, and if you really just want to get the deep dive in, there is uh, always some Freud you can read. Oh, don't do it to yeah. yourself. Yeah, don't. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe avoid. Unless maybe... you're interested in 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 that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, this might not be the last time that we talk about a Hitchcock film from the master of suspense. But until then, um, for Yaz's birthday, come back next Monday. My name is Will. My name is Yaz. And thanks for listening to the Monster Monday podcast. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. A boy's best friend is his mother.